welcome back to yet another episode of Pour Me Another. My name is John, and I'm your host. How's everybody doing? How's your week going? What's going on? I'm uh, I'm here today on the, uh, let's see, today's the 3rd of June, 2019, and today's going to be my monthly recap of the month of May, May 2019. It was the beginning of summer, and it was... Oh God, May's been good. I I've had a good May so far. I it, it's it's the weather has finally turned into something that I can uh, I can really get behind, man. I <laughs> I completely I, I've gotten to the point in my life where winter is no longer something I truly enjoy. I'm much more into <laughs> warmer weather so that I can go out and do things and not feel oppressed by coats and hoodies and blue jeans and boots and shit. Um. Yeah, so May was May was a, a much warmer, much happier, greener month. Uh, we're finally seeing some of that global warming come into play, and I'm happy about it. Um, <laughs> I hope that your May was beautiful. Today is a kind of a special episode because I received, for the first time ever, support from a listener in the form of a bottle of delicious bourbon and a glass to drink it from. I know you're listening, Justin. Thank you, buddy. Uh, first of all, the bo- the bourbon that you sent was delicious. Um, it was Larceny is the name of the company. Or uh, maybe it was something Fitzgerald, but the brand of bourbon was Larceny. And it it's it's delicious. It's a little bit smokier and a little bit more woodsy and darker than uh, Maker's Mark, my usual. Maker's Mark is a little sweeter and spicier, but but Larceny is still really, really good. And it gives me, it gave me the vibe of I was I was drinking more of a bourbon from like, I don't know, like a, like a Prohibition bar in 1925, and you know, sitting there smoking a cigar with my dirty bourbon, dark room, that kind of thing. That's what it felt like. And the the glass that he gave me is really really cool. It's from a company called Ben Shot, and it's legit. It's just it's a Scotch glass with a 308 round, um, sort of pushed into the side of it, like it had been Ben Shot, and uh, a 308 bullet, and it's it's handmade in the United States, and it's really fucking cool. And so I I want to say thank you again to Justin who sent me that awesome bottle of bourbon and the super cool glass. And from now on, when I drink uh, bourbon or scotch or, or any of the 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 darker liquors that require this kind of glass, this will be the glass that I'll be drinking from. So from now on, you have a permanent place on the show. Uh, your 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 contribution will forever be a part of it. And it's cool. Like the you get to use the bullet as like this little hand stop for you for you to hold the glass a little bit better. It's awesome. I really like it. And 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 the bullet kind of like shines and and sort of gets wet as you drink. Anyway, as you can hear, that's the glass. Hmm. Oh fuck, that's delicious. That's the bourbon. And so that's that's name of the show is Pour Me Another. Today we're drinking Larceny uh out of a uh, a bullet glass courtesy of Mr. Justin K. I won't say your last name on the air, Justin. Um well, I'm not on the air on the podcast, but you know who you are. I love you. I appreciate you. Justin's a, a a listener. He's been he's been listening to the show from the start and he's also uh, a friend uh, going way back to my time in high school in uh, Allegheny County, North Carolina. So thanks again, Justin. 
Um, and we'll get right into the recap of the month of May, May 2019. So like I said before, as always, the news is going to be uplifting, happy news. It's not going to be uh, fucking sad, depressing news. And uh, we'll start with number one, um, the Warani people of Pastaza, Ecuador. They're indigenous. They're an indigenous tribe from the Ecuadorian Amazon. And after a long legal battle this month, uh, they successfully protected, what is it, a half a million acres of their ancestral territory in the Amazonian rainforest from a bunch of big coal or oil mining facilities, oil, oil, oil drilling companies were going to come in to their facility or I'm sorry, not their facility, their lands and drill for oil. And these people said, fuck you, no way. And evidently the, 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 the deal that the Ecuadorian government worked out with these people was really sketchy and not cool at all. And so the, uh, the, the tribe sued and they ended up getting it blocked. And evidently it's a big, uh, it sets a precedent for, the uh, similar future legal scenarios in Ecuador. And that's good fucking news because, uh, you know, as, as, as much as our environment is being affected by our own actions today, it's important that we protect, uh, protect these, these, especially the rainforest as much as possible. So good job. Uh, Warani people. I, I hope I'm saying that. What that right. Uh, W A O R A N I Warani, I think is how you say it. Okay. Number two, North Dakota, became the 25th state in the union to decriminalize marijuana. And they did that pretty quietly. And for those of you that don't know what that means, decriminalization doesn't mean that you can like smoke weed in public. It doesn't make it legal, but it makes it decriminalized, meaning people that are caught with small amounts of marijuana are not going to be prosecuted and, and destroyed by the law. It'll be more like a fine situation. People with a bunch of it, I'm sure, still can be because that's like criminal movement of drugs, I guess. But um, uh, the decriminalization means that people caught with pot are no longer going to be going to like long term jail or catch heavy sentences. So that's good news. In Australia, a man was walking along the beach with his dog Lucky and his granddaughter, and uh, or it was either his daughter or his granddaughter, and she kicked a rock. And uh, Lucky was licking and sniffing at the rock. And so then the dad picks it up and it turns out to be a 624 gram gold nugget. Total value $37,000. So hooray for Mr. Gold Nugget and his lucky dog named Lucky. Of course, the dog's name was fucking Lucky. Uh, down in Australia. Um, I guess in Australia, gold just be lying up on the beach, y'all. So uh Next time you're planning a beach vacation, skip fucking Myrtle um, and and forget the Salt Life sticker and take your ass over to Australia. Maybe you'll find some gold. Thanks, Lucky. <laughs> okay, uh, moving along. In Washington State, parents will no longer be able to claim a personal or philosophical exemption for their children from receiving the combined measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine uh, before attending school. So uh, that was signed into a law by Governor Jay Inslee. Thanks, Jay, doing doing the, the work of science here. Uh, the state, evidently there were 70 cases of measles, 70 or more cases of measles last year, and they decided to do this uh, to counteract that. So first of all, uh, I've said this before, vaccinate your kids. Vaccines don't cause autism, they cause adults. And secondly, good for Washington for moving that football down the field. I think that Everyone should be mandatory vaccinations. Um, 
I, I got into an argument about vaccines not too long ago where someone they said, you know, a lot of the a lot of the, the, the outcry against vaccines were the proper and safe implementation of the vaccines, which I can totally get behind. Right. Like I know it's a medicine. And and when you're dealing in medicine, when you're taking medicine, the company creating it needs to ensure that it's the safest form of that medicine possible. So I get that. But uh, arguing against vaccines because they cause autism is false. That's not true. And you should get your kids vaccinated. So I'll probably go back to that every now and then because it seems to be a hot button issue. I keep seeing stuff about. But anyway, Washington. Yeah, uh, they signed a law. You got to have it. Okay, um, number five. Uh, and, uh, you know, every month I like to include a little bit of space news. Hang on a second. I need some more of this delicious bourbon. Mm. That makes me happy from the inside out. Okay, uh, yeah, space news. Every month, a little bit of space news. All right, this one, number five, our fifth piece of uplifting happy news this month. Uh, the government of the United States and Japan, the governments of the United States and Japan, have agreed to further cooperation in space, which, uh, let's see. Well, what they've agreed upon is that Japanese astronauts and Japanese uh, space agencies are going to be involved in our project, uh, the Lunar Gateway, in 2024. So basically, the Japanese have signed up to uh, join the United States in the Lunar Project for 2024. Uh, I, I just said the name, but to, to reiterate, it's called the Lunar Gateway, and evidently NASA, the United States government, they want to put people back on the moon as the next step in the evolution of the American space program. And so earlier, I think I mentioned Canada will be involved. Now Japan has agreed to be involved. Uh, that I believe that that deal was struck while Trump is in Japan visiting with uh, the president of Japan, uh, Abe, A-B-E is his last name. And they both discussed at great length how they want the countries to collaborate on that project. And so now I think also Trump is pushing for increase in funding for our lunar project in 2024, the Lunar Gateway. So that's fucking outstanding, awesome news. The more people, the more nations, the more the more science and, and humanity involved in space, uh, and especially, a, you know, a return to the moon is a good thing. And so that's awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. When I read it, I was really excited. Every, the more that I read about this Lunar Gateway project, the more I get excited. Because they're developing all kinds of new technologies for it, and it's going to be going down in just the next few years. You know what I mean? Like, uh, let's see, uh, George R. R. Martin probably won't get his next installment of the books of Game of Thrones out before we land on the fucking moon again. Um, that's cool, <laughs> and I'm excited about it. So, very good news. All right, so every month I do an airplane of the month, and this month the airplane is going to be, let's see, uh, the first one I did was the P-51 Mustang. The second one was not an airplane. It was actually the Apache helicopter. And so this month I decided to go with something a little faster, a little swankier, a little nastier, and it's the F-4 Phantom, originally created by McDonnell Aircraft and then McDonnell Douglas Aircraft. Um, the F-4 for Phantom 2, which is, oh my god, my phone is ringing. Hang on, everybody, I'm going to pause the show. Okay, I'm back, and uh, I'm be honest with you, it was a fucking scammer. Before I continue with the airplane of the month, I would like to make a, a blanket statement about scam phone calls. This has become a regular fucking problem, where my phone blows up, and I pick up the phone, and there's nothing. 
for five seconds. And then there's either nothing permanently or I get a recording. You've been pre-selected for a loan from our asshole. I mean, how can it be legal? It's awful. I, I've, I've had to change my number in this area three times because of these fucking robocalls. Jesus Christ. And, and, it, and it's, it's 6 o'clock in the afternoon on a, on a Monday. I shouldn't be getting fucking robocalls at 6 o'clock in the afternoon on a goddamn Monday. This is bullshit. The government should do something about it. But they won't. I guarantee it. Okay. Going back to the airplane of the month. The F-4 Phantom Two. And they called it the Phantom 2 because there was a... McDonald actually did make a, another Phantom way earlier on. Um, in the I think it was the late 40s, mid to late 40s, they made a Phantom and it was a turd. But they called it the Phantom 2. They, they went through all kinds of names for this aircraft. Anyway, the F-4 Phantom was a big, chunky, multi-role fighter bomber during the Vietnam era. Monster of an airplane. Huge. And it had like a long snout of a nose with a little radar pod on the bottom and big, nasty looking intakes next to the cockpit. It was a two seat cockpit, two man crew. Uh, it was it had a, it had a really wild kind of uh, tail um, empennage. Right. Remember, the empennage is the tail section of the aircraft. The uh, what would have been the vertical stabilizers. I mean, I'm sorry, horizontal stabilizers was really just one big movable surface that became the stable let's see stabilator yeah so it's got two stabilators that point kind of down it's got two J79s Pratt and Whitney J79 turbojet engines so Pratt and Whitney is a very very common engine manufacturer um among jet aircraft and 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 specifically fighter jets and so the J-79 was a big, large, ultra-powerful, after-burning turbojet. And so there's two types of uh, turbine jet engines that we see in the use of aircraft. There's turbojets and then there's turbofans. Most modern jets, all I think actually all modern jets, are some form of a turbofan, where they put a fan blade on the front of the engine, increases uh, efficiency and thrust production. There's like high-bypass, low-bypass turbofans. But before that, they had turbojets. And the turbojet was just a straight pipe where it sucked in the air with fan blades, compressed it in the compressor section, shot fuel into it, set it on fire, blew it out the ass. It was just a real straight, simple jet pipe turbine thing. And at the end, the, the turbine wheel collected the exhaust of that simple you know, production of, uh, of thrust and, and then redistributed it, right? So um that was a turbojet well the j79 that powers the f4 phantom is a giant turbojet engine with afterburning capability and so what an afterburner is for those of you that don't know an afterburner has the regular turbojet system right or turbofan even it can be a turbofan as long as it's a jet engine right it's a regular jet engine and then at the back end of the engine in the exhaust section it squirts fuel into the superheated exhaust of the jet and that ignites and and it's just an enormous that's why it's called after burning it's burning after the engine and it creates an enormous additional amount of thrust it is also extremely fuel inefficient you will burn through 
all your fuel in real short order with afterburner on all the time. Afterburner is used, it's reserved for situations like takeoff or when you're in desperate need of, of maximum additional thrust on a climb out or maybe to get the advantage on an enemy fighter jet. But it's not something that would be used all the time. Afterburner is, it, it just it uses way too much fuel, it heats the engine way up. Um, you know, if you're trying to go Mach 2.5 in the F4 Phantom 2, which is its top speed, that's two and a half times the speed of sound you would use your afterburner to get up to that speed. So the the F4 Phantom, it was the evolution of a plane known as the uh, the McDonnell F3H, which kind of looks like the F4 a little bit, has some of those same features. But in the in the late like 1950s, the Navy decided that they wanted uh, a new fighter bomber. They wanted a they wanted a, a strike fighter aircraft. I think is what they said. Hang on. Oh, I needed another drink. Um, they want another like strike aircraft, and so the Navy put out the contract, and McDonald went to work putting together this thing. And uh, the first, let's see, the first F four, well, it was like the YHF four, something like that. You know, they gave it the experimental designation. Flew May twenty seventh, nineteen fifty eight, and eventually, what happened was they wanted it to be like a strike aircraft, but other airplanes already fit that rule. So then they ended up saying they wanted it a. A point defense interceptor for the for the fleet defense, and so the F four was was what McDonald came up with, and it was really designed um, around the Sparrow three radar missile system. And so we're talking about missiles for the interception of of enemy aircraft. There's two types: there's radar guided, and there's um, infrared heat seekers. Okay, so radar locks onto the electromagnetic signature of the aircraft that's being emitted by all of it. Um, it's it's equipment, but then also the body of the plane. The radar in the aircraft will get a radar lock on the enemy airplane from all of its equipment and, and metal body structure. And then the pilot fires the missile, and then the radar in the airplane guides the missile to the target. That's a radar-guided missile. Now, in the modern age, we have what's called fire and forget, where they achieve that lock, and then the missile is smart enough that once you fire it, you don't need to guide it anymore. It literally just goes straight to the target without you having to do anything else. Um, the other kind of missile is infrared. And so an IR missile is, it, it literally just, it sees a hot spot and it tracks towards the hot spot. Okay, and so the, the, the heat exhaust of a jet engine, I don't know how many degrees it is. I, I, I should have looked that information up. It's very hot. And so when you get a lock on, a, on that heat signature, you, you fire the missile and it tracks up the heat signature. Old school IR missiles required um, the airplane to help guide them in. Newer ones, and even I think during the Vietnam War, which was the phantoms you know time frame uh you could you could get a, a a heat lock an ir lock on the enemy target fire the missile and it would track all the way in on its own but uh so so the the original radar missile would have been the sparrow 3 the sparrows were were well there i don't want to get into missile technology because there were so many other missiles before this but the f4 was initially designed to carry the sparrow missile and so sparrow was a it wasn't very maneuverable but it was a fast radar guided air to air missile you'd fire it from one plane with the purpose of destroying another plane Okay, so they designed it around that. Uh, like I said, first flew in 1958, and um, they, the Navy wanted it to be a two-seater fighter because of the heavy workload um, associated with operating 
a point defense interceptor for the fleet. You know, you got this radar system on board that you're operating, and the the, the initial radar system the F four had was the AN APQ fifty, and then it became the AN APQ seventy two, which was a lot better. Same kind of thing, just upgraded. But so you had this guy operating this really heavy radar system that requires a lot of. I mean, it was very technical back then. Radar wasn't simple. It wasn't just a screen sweeping and shit. You had to tune it and work it and, and manipulate it and understand it. And so. You know, that was the job of the guy in the back seat. And then he also fed information to the weapon systems while the pilot was flying the plane up front and then, you know, um, firing missiles or guns or whatever. Speaking of guns, so most fighter aircraft in the United States arsenal throughout history have had guns uh, because the, most dogfights, a dogfight is when two airplanes engage one another in air-to-air combat most dogfights especially in jets ends up subsonic you know you might start out in a supersonic configuration where you're going really fast but the maneuvering to try and get the one over on each other that's going to end up putting it into a subsonic fight especially at this time back in the 60s and 70s when we're talking about the strengths and weaknesses of fighter aircraft there's usually two schools of thought It'll either be maneuverable or it'll be fast. There isn't, or not until recently, has there been a combination of the two. And so back in the day, you know, you either had a fighter jet that could turn fight really well or you had a a fighter jet that was really fast and could energy fight really well. And so the difference between those two things is like in a turn fight, you're trying to get behind the enemy so that you can kill him with a missile or the guns. In an energy fight, you're going really fast and and you're you're carrying a lot of energy and you're using that energy to maintain the tactical advantage. And that usually means being higher than the enemy. You get up high and then you do what's called a boom and zoom uh, on them. Or you could, you know, you zoom into the fight, you fire off a missile and then you you scoot away real fast because you're going so quick. That's energy fighting. You attack from a higher altitude. You zoom down on him. You give him a shot. You either hit him or you don't, and then you zoom away regardless. You, 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 you use that kinetic energy you gained in a dive to speed away as fast as possible and outrun the lower, slower, maybe more maneuverable airplane that you've attacked. The F-4 Phantom was a pure energy fighter in the traditional sense. It was designed to go super-duper fast and fly very, very quickly in and out of dogfights and engagements. And so when, they, when, when the United States military, the Air Force... And, and the Navy and the Marine Corps, all three had the F-4. When they took this plane into combat, the idea was it's new, it's advanced, it's quicker than those shitty Vietnamese and Russian, Soviet, Chinese fighters, but we shouldn't have a problem. But they ended up having a big problem. Hmm. Because a lot of the times, like I said, dogfights would turn into subsonic turn fights. But the F-4 couldn't turn for shit. It was it was it was a junk it was a junk in turns, it was junk in turns. Um, but it was very fast, and so eventually they learned how to use that, but not before they lost a good clip of of F four Phantoms to dogfights. And so Vietnam Vietnam was uh, a, a really terrible conflict in a lot of ways, but the air war over Vietnam was particularly brutal, especially most especially for American aviators, because. We were sending, you know, thousands of airplanes into Vietnam to run sorties, bombings, you know, air intercept missions, all that stuff. And 
Vietnam was kind of a proxy war between the United States and communism at large. Not just communist Vietnam, but communist China, communist Russia. A lot of that Soviet bloc technology ended up in Vietnam. And in, in enormous numbers, anti-aircraft systems, anti-aircraft cannons, anti-aircraft missiles, SAM, surface-to-air missiles. So whenever you flew over Vietnam you were in grave danger of being shot down from the ground. But not only that, there were a lot of enemy fighter jets. MiGs were, were chiefly the... They were, I think, I'm pretty sure it was all MiGs, to be honest. There might have been some other like Sukhoi planes or something, but mostly it was MiGs. And if you don't know what a MiG is, MiG is capital M, lowercase i, capital G, stands for Mikoyan Gerovich, which is a initially Soviet and now they're still in existence, so Russian, fighter aircraft manufacturer. They literally deal in fighter jets. That's what they make, fighter planes and fighter jets. started out in prop aircraft during World War II, and they've, they've just remained in existence. And so during the Vietnam era, the planes you would have seen over Vietnam would have been the MiG-19, I'm sorry, MiG-17, MiG-19, and MiG-21. The objective of... Soviet technology like that, those MiG fighters, was always to get in as close as possible and engage in a turn battle. And they all had guns, and they had some really nasty little short-range infrared missiles, too. But I don't think, that, I don't think, I'm not sure, I, I might be, I don't want to make a blanket statement about this. I don't know if the Soviet fighters had missiles during Vietnam. You always hear about gunfights. In Vietnam, So I assume that it was a mostly a gunfight operation because that's what the Vietnamese pilots operating these Soviet built MiGs wanted to do was they wanted to get in super duper close, grab you by the shirt collar, bring you into a knife fight. And they had the advantage. Their MiG-19, MiG-17, MiG-21s, those planes could outturn the faster, heavier, bigger MiG, or I'm sorry, F-4 Phantom, which is what we're talking about. There were other fighter jets from the American side involved in Vietnam in terms of air-to-air combat. I think the uh, F-8 Crusader got involved there for a little while, and that was an actual gunfighter. Did pretty well against the mix. But the, the F-4 became the most widely used fighter aircraft of the Vietnam War by the United States. And so, you know, when air crews were up there engaging in air-to-air combat, nine times out of ten, it was in the cockpit of an F-4 Phantom. Delicious. So, yeah, the, the F-4 was bigger, faster, two-man crew. They experienced casualties, you know, early on that they were, they were really surprised by. And, and they immediately identified that they needed a gun system. The F-4 was originally not designed to have an internally mounted air-to-air gun system, which is something that, you know, all modern military fighters have. Even the F-22 and the F-35, they have guns inside them. It just is something you're going to end up needing at some point in one way or another. Well, the F-4 didn't have that initially. Eventually, it did. Eventually, what happened was they fitted it with gun pods, which you would mount on the on a, on a, like a pylon, a wing pylon exterior of the aircraft, not inside the nose where most modern gun pod systems are. Uh, so they had this gun pod for a while. I remember some... some uh, Air Force Colonel, I forget who it was. Maybe it was Robin Olds. I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't think it was him actually. But anyway, they did a study on the cost effectiveness of having a gun system aboard an F-4 Phantom, and he talked about I shot down one 
MiG-17 with a Sparrow missile. The cost of that was $300,000. I shot down a MiG-21 with my cannon. The cost of that was $1,200, you know? So the cost effectiveness was totally different with the gun pod, with the cannon. And, and that's a big deal to the military because they want to spend as little money as possible in, in, in terms of killing the enemy. Um, so eventually the F-4 was fitted with a, an internal 20-millimeter Vulcan cannon, which is what most of our... Uh, you know, like dedicated fighter aircraft have been carrying ever since was that 20 millimeter Vulcan cannon. But so let's see, I've got a whole sheet of data here about the F-4 Phantom. It, it, the F-4 flew with the Air Force and the Navy. The first Air Force F-4 Phantom flew on the 27th of May, 1963, and it went over Mach 2 on its first flight. So that's, I mean, it was just a fast plane. It was built to be super fucking quick, and that's what it did. Um, let's see... I'm looking for some good facts in here. Um, the Air Force wanted to emphasize the fighter-bomber role. Okay, so fighter-bomber, meaning it had the ability to engage enemy fighter aircraft in air-to-air -air combat and shoot them down and kill them, and also it could bomb. And the F-4 actually turned out to be really, really good at bombing. It could carry a shitload of bombs. I mean, it, it was it was laden with a lot of munitions. And so that is actually the role that it ended up playing most during the Vietnam War. Uh, in total, 5,195 F-4s would be produced. So that's a lot. And it served in, let's see, 12 different countries, including Greece, the United Kingdom, Australia, Germany, Germany. Uh, Korea and Japan. It was retired from U.S. service in 1996. So this aircraft, it was introduced in the early 1960s and flew for 30 years in the United States military. Its big show was in Vietnam. And that's where it was used the most. And it was the first airplane to have look-down, shoot-down missile capabilities, which means basically that's beyond visual range. Like, you could look down and fire your missile, and it would it would you wouldn't see the enemy airplane. It was, it was outside of your visual range. It had a very powerful radar system for its, its time. And, you know, it was the first one that was able to engage beyond visual range. I didn't read any data about whether or not it ever actually successfully shot down a plane beyond visual range, but the United States air force ended up being the largest F4 phantom user. They really embraced it. The Navy was a big user too, though. So the air four was capable of launching to and from an aircraft carrier as well as, you know, a, a traditional air base. And that's why the Air Force and the Marine Corps both had it. Uh, it, it's, it was mostly used for bombing, but it was also very well capable of air-to-air -air combat, which was one of the roles that it was, you know, most well-known for and renowned for. Got its first kill. It was 1965. It was a MiG-17. Uh, the uh, Navy F-4 Phantom shot down a MiG-17 with an AIM-7 Sparrow, the radar-guided missile. Uh, the first F-4 was lost in 1965 over Vietnam by a Soviet SAM. As a result of that, later models were fitted with uh, surface-to-air missile detection radar that would first tell you where the missile was coming from, or I'm sorry, where the radar was tracking you from, and then the missile. So that played a, an integral, integral role in saving... Um, F-4 crews from surface-to-air missile attacks. Now, what's really interesting about the F-4 was it was the first wild weasel. The wild weasel, that's a term that still exists. It's associated with fighter aircraft whose job is to go into the battlefield 
and find surface-to-air missiles and get them to shoot at you and then shoot back with an anti-radiation missile. Okay, so the way a, ra- a radar system works, right? Radar radar is, oh gosh, radio aircraft detection and blah, blah. I can't remember what radar stands for exactly off the top of my head. But it is a form of radiation. It, it's, it's, you're radiating radio waves into the atmosphere to you know detect aircraft. And then once those radio waves hit something, they bounce off of the aircraft and return to the receiver, the detector. Okay, And what a wild weasel would do is they'd go up and they'd actually act as a decoy. And they would want radar systems, surface-to-air missile radar systems, to track them that was loud, sorry, track them. And then once they've got a track, you can fire a missile like a Shrike, I think is what it was called, the Shrike missile. It was designed to ride the SAM's radar guidance system all the way down to the to the radar uh, array that's guiding that SAM. And so, because that's how it, surface-to-air missiles were... Not fire and forget. You would you would get a lock on your your aircraft that you want to shoot down. You'd fire the missile, and then it would ride your radar beam all the way into the target. Okay, so once you fire, you've got to keep your radar on, or the missile misses. So the fucking wild weasel guys. Think about how crazy it is. Think about how fucking how ballsy that would be. Because Sams are dangerous. Sams fucking kill people. I mean, they're effective, man. They shot down thousands of airplanes during the Vietnam War. You, these guys are literally flying into the field of battle to say, hey, here I am in an F-4 Phantom. Take a shot at me. And when they shoot at them, while the missile is in the air is when they would fire their Shrike. And the Shrike would ride that so it's almost like the missiles pass each other in the air. They would use that radar signature, that radar detection system against the Vietnamese on the ground. And so that was the wild weasel. The wild weasel is still in, I th- I'm pretty sure we still have wild weasels. We definitely still had wild weasels at least during um, Iraq, Persian Gulf War, because the, I think F-16s were flying the wild weasels back then. But but yeah, that was one of the jobs of the uh, the F-4 Phantom was to, to pull wild weasel duty and, and blow up surface-to-air missile sites. Now... Like I said before, the anti-aircraft uh, abilities of the Vietnamese during the Vietnam War was so outstanding. They shot down so many planes. One of, one of our bombers during the Vietnam War was called the F-105 Thunder Chief. Pilots called it the Thud. And it was a bomber. It was a dedicated bomber. Excuse me. Mm. Bourbon. So the F-105 Thunder Chief, the Thud, was a dedicated bomber. And they suffered extraordinary attrition rates during the Vietnam War. They were made to fly these horrible missions where they're down at like 14,000 feet doing tactical bombing runs. In perfect range of double A, triple A, that's that's anti-aircraft artillery and then anti-aircraft machine guns and and also surface to air missiles. And they just got chewed the fuck up, man. They just got chewed up. And it was it was it was not as technically advanced the F-105 as as the F-4 Phantom. And so eventually the F-4 started to pick up a lot of that bombing slack as F-105s just got shot down more and more. And eventually they pulled the F-105 completely and the F-4 Phantom became the primary bombing platform, tactical bombing platform of the United States Air Force. Meanwhile, the Navy had you know a couple other airplanes that they would bomb with like the A7E and then the A4 Skyhawk which is what John John McCain was flying an A4 Skyhawk when he got shot down but during during the Vietnam War the F4 ended up doing a ton of bomber duty and it was all very tactical bombing tactical being bombing in support of ground operations so you know it it bombed and bombed and bombed and it it it, it did have a lot of air to air combat action let's see you know what happened? Uh, you've heard of Top Gun. 
fighter weapons school was developed during the Vietnam War. And the reason it was developed is because initially all these fighter pilots went out in these F-4 Phantoms and they were dogfighting with these MiG-17, 19, 21s. And they, were st- they started to get losses. They weren't exactly getting, you know, absolutely waylaid, but they were losing airplanes. It was almost like a one-to-one, two-to-one thing. Like, we were killing them, but they were killing us too. And the Navy said, this is fucked. Like, we, we, we have to do something about this. So they, they started studying air combat tactics in Vietnam. They created a school called Fighter Weapons School, Top Gun. And the idea was teach a few fighter pilots in the Navy how to effectively engage their Vietnamese adversaries, send them back to the fleet, teach them how, and then have those Top Gun boys teach everybody else how to engage the enemy. And that was the birth of Top Gun. That's where Top Gun comes from, was these Navy fighter pilots needed to learn how to properly use their equipment, the F-4 Phantom, to engage the more maneuverable, more nimble MiG fighters. And so that's where the Top Gun thing comes from. And so that's what happened. That's what they did. And they were very good at it. They were effective. Uh, it was so effective that their 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 kill ratio went way up. They started losing fewer planes, and started killing more MiGs. The Air Force developed their own version of Fighter Weapons School. I can't remember what it was called, but uh, Fighter Weapons and Tactics or something. Anyway, they, they both did the same thing. They, they, uh, they identified that they were losing a bunch of dudes, and they needed to you know, teach their fighter pilots how to effectively combat the MiG fighters that were more maneuverable. So that's where that came from. Well, one of the fallouts of that was... Uh, the Navy had its first aces. An ace is any pilot who goes out on a mission, or not even a mission, goes out on multiple missions, who shoots down five or more airplanes. So if you bag five, you're an ace. And so on 10 May 1972, Lieutenant Randy Duke Cunningham and Lieutenant J.G. William Driscoll, Willie Driscoll, they were in an F-4J, call sign Showtime 100. They shot down three MiG-17s in a single mission. And they had shot down two other aircraft previous to this. They became the first American flying aces of the war. On their way home, their plane got shot down. They they got damaged, I think, by a surface-to-air missile. So Showtime 100 became no more. But the fifth victory, their final their final shootdown, was believed to be this really mysterious North Vietnamese fighter ace, uh, Colonel Nguyen Toon. And he was kind of like a myth of the Vietnam air-to-air combat arena. And uh, they're they're pretty sure that Randy Cunningham and and Willie Driscoll shot him down. That was their ace kill. At least that's what they say. <laughs> Who knows if it's true? But that's that's what they were saying. You guys might remember Randy Cunningham, old Duke Cunningham. Uh, I can't remember which which state was his, but he became like a a representative or a senator for one of his states for the state that he's from. Got in big fucking legal trouble. Did jail time. Isn't that fucked up? He was a fighter ace, though, in Vietnam. So anyway, yeah, yeah, fighter weapons school worked out for the Navy because they started shooting guys down like crazy. So did the Air Force. They still lost a lot of planes. I mean, that that I'm telling you, that air defense artillery, that, that air defense capacity in Vietnam was ridiculous. They shot down a lot of fighter planes. I think we lost like 10,000-some fighters or planes, period, aircraft, 10,000 aircraft, helicopters, airplanes, fighters, bombers, etc. during the Vietnam War. That's a lot of material. The Vietnamese didn't lose nearly as much and that might be because they didn't have as much. I mean, we decimated their air power. Mm. More bourbon. Um, 
But uh, yeah, yeah, they 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 didn't they didn't lose nearly as many as we did. The United States Air Force and the United States Navy, and the United States Marine Corps, they lost a lot of planes. So I have the numbers here. Let's see. Um, in terms of air-to-air combat, U.S. Navy F-4 Phantoms scored 40 air-to-air victories at a loss of seven Phantoms to enemy aircraft. Marine Corps pilots shot down three and lost one, and then. U.S. Air Force guys claimed 107 and a half MiG kills at a cost of 33 F-4 Phantoms. So the total F-4 Phantom kill score during the Vietnam War air-to-air was 150 and a half MiG kills at a cost of 42 F-4 Phantoms. In total, 761 F-4 Phantoms were lost during combat operations. In Vietnam, I think total F-4 Phantoms loss was closer to 900 and some because of accidents and stuff like that. But 761 planes, double that. What is that? 1,500 men in the air crew ejected or were killed. It's a lot of guys. It's a lot of fighter pilots. The F-4 Phantom, F-4 Phantom ended up also serving in the Persian Gulf War as wild weasels. Oh, okay. So it wasn't actually the F-16s. In, in in the Persian Gulf War, running the wild weasels, it was the F-4s. So the F-4, as you can see, long term of combat service in the United States Air Force, United States Navy, United States Marine Corps, retired from service in 1996, served all over the world. Um, on a more personal note, the reason that I wanted to talk about the F-4 Phantom is because that was the first airframe that my mother worked on in her service in the United States Air Force. My mom was an I think hydraulics, neutrolics mechanic on first F4s and then F15s, but she worked on the F4 Phantom. And when I asked her about it, she said it was the coolest fucking airplane to watch take off. It was loud and it was awesome, which it would be. It was a turbojet. They're always a lot louder. She said it was a really beautiful plane, really cool looking plane, but it was a bitch to work on. She said it was an absolute bitch of an airplane to work on. Just because, I mean, I imagine, you know, fighter jets in the seventies were probably pretty shitty to work on anyway, but, but she had, she had, she, she said good things about the F4. It was a very, 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 it was famous. Everybody knew the F4 Phantom back in the day and, and, and in aviation in general, we still do, you know, that's a plane. Most aviation enthusiasts and junkies know what an F4 Phantom is. It, 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 it created this legacy it was the first real beastly supersonic fighter to be renowned in the united states air power arsenal 761 planes lost in combat it's a lot so that was the aircraft of the month the f4 phantom there were there was f4a f4b f4e f4j there were just all kinds of models of the f4 phantom you know it went through a lot of changes but it was a iconic fighter of the Cold War era and especially the Vietnam War. So there's your there's your aircraft of the month, the F four Phantom two. Oh I need another drink. I've I've been taking sips on you guys periodically, uh out of this this glass. Every time I do I it's I, I see this bullet and I'm like, maybe that's the bullet that was meant for me, but missed. I don't know. Either way, bourbon. Mm. All right. Now, as you know, it's time to move on to the asshole of the month. 
Ah, uh, yes. The asshole of the month. It's one of my favorite things to do on this show. It's the asshole of the month. I get to pick uh, a group of people and talk shit about them. And, and, and the beauty of it is that I'm not like calling out one specific individual by name that's alive. Because I feel like that would be hostile. Instead, I just make fun of people that are douchebags, that are assholes. And this month, the asshole of the month is people that drive slowly in the fast lane. I know you've experienced this. We all have. It's, it's, this is a universal sensation. You're driving along. Maybe you're going to work. Maybe you're going on vacation. Maybe you're just going to the store to get a pack of cigarettes. doesn't matter. You're headed somewhere. You're on the highway. There's two lanes. There's a lane on the right, and there's a lane on the left. And the right lane is known as the slow lane. And the left lane is known as the fucking fast lane or maybe the passing lane. But but either way, the fucking point is that the lane on the left is for cars to go around. That's why it exists. Oh, 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 brilliant. Oh, who came up with such a wonderful idea? They were a fucking genius, whoever they were. Unfortunately, people that use those roads aren't fucking geniuses. A lot of them are goddamn dumb. People that go slow in the fast lane. People that that block the passing lane. This is something, I mean, <laughs> if you guys are my friends and you've seen on like maybe Snapchat, I, I, I lose my goddamn mind over this more than anything else when I'm driving my fucking car. If I'm, if I'm cruising along and, and, and there's two lanes and I, I see ahead two cars right next to each other and the one on the left isn't moving faster than the other, my fucking eye starts to twitch and I start to get angry, like irrationally fucking angry because I know I'm about to deal with a total fucking idiot who doesn't comprehend the concept of the left lane is the fast lane, it's the passing lane, get the fuck out of the way. If you're in the left lane, you better be be moving quick. That's your job. That's what you're there for. That's why you're in that left lane. That's why it exists. Its literal purpose is to pass. And if you go slow in the fucking fast-passing lane, you're an asshole. You're a self-centered, oblivious, daydreaming asshole. Because I know that's what people... That's the only thing that I can come up with that people are doing when they're out there driving slow in the fast lane. They're they're driving slow in the fast lane. The fast lane is their... They're daydreaming. They're thinking about that booty they're going to get. They're thinking about the fucking, the, the pack of natty ice they can't wait to get home and crack open so they can drink themselves into a stupor before they beat their wife. I don't, because that's a kind of fucking moron that it must take. I, I, I can't even comprehend being in the fast lane and thinking, you know what's a good fucking idea? I'm going to go real slow in this bitch. Not only am I going to go slow, I'm going to drive right up next to the next available vehicle. I'm going to fucking match his speed. I'm just going to sit right next to him in a fucking forward lane highway look at it. i'm just gonna stare straight ahead listening to my alan jackson records you fucking asshole and i only i'm only using rednecks because because that's what's you know like ubiquitous here where i live um I'm, I'm not saying all country people drive slow in the fast lane just just dickhead randy dickhead daryl driving around carroll fucking county going fucking 52 in the fast lane completely oblivious to the fact that he is a giant asshole for blocking the passing lane. Look, man, when I'm when I'm on the road, if it if the fucking speed limit says sixty, or I'm sorry, if the speed limit says fifty-five, 
I'm doing 6263. I'm right in that envelope of where I won't get a ticket, but I'm going as fast as possible to get where I got to be because time is money. Motherfucker, I got places to be, and it doesn't help if you're driving in front of me going slow as old people fucking in the fast lane. So, I'd like to make a blanket statement to every one of you out there who regularly drives slow in the fast lane. You are a giant asshole. Get the fuck out of my way. Jesus Christ, man. I've got places to be, goddammit. Yeah, get the fuck out of my way, you asshole. <laughs> that's what the fucking... That's what the, uh... That's what the fast lane is for. It's for passing. Get out of the way. I mean, seriously, no, no, no. That's 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 really what it's for. It's the passing lane. Get get out of the way. Some old lady got a ticket recently. Made it all over the internet. She went viral for it because she was going slow. She had like 20 people blocked and some state trooper pulled her over, gave her a ticket because, bitch, get the fuck out the way. You're in the passing lane. Damn. All right, moving along. It is time for my second little bit. Every monthly episode like this, I get to talk shit. Known as... Douchebags of History. Yeah, that's right. It's douchebags of history. Douchebags of history. Today's douchebag of history is Kim Il Sung, you short little North Korean motherfucker. All right. Kim Il Sung. Do you not know who he is? Well, let me tell you. Kim Il Sung was born in, well, who gives a fuck? He was Kim Il Jong's dad. Okay. He was the, he was the creator of North Korea. Really? Okay. Uh, Kim Il, Kim Il Sung, that wasn't even his original name. I don't even, I, I read it. I uh, should have got it for you. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm a little drunk. This bourbon's going straight to my head. Talking about Kim Il-sung. He's a little piece of shit. <laughs> Kim Il-sung was the creator of North Korea. He was the original father of North Korea. And and he was born uh, Korean. He ended up trained under communist Russia, Soviet, the Soviet Union. And what happened was during the Japanese occupation of China, he went and fought and uh, fought against the, the, the Japanese. Changed his name from what it originally was to Kim Il-sung, which was the name of a legendary Korean resistance fighter. And so it was kind of a bullshit story. And what happened was the Soviet Union caught wind of this Kim Il-sung guy and, and said, Hey, hey, let's hey, let's recruit this little fucker, and uh, we'll, we'll train him how to be a communist revolutionary soldier. And so they did that. He ended up fighting in World War II. He he led a whole uh, Korean element of troops in the Soviet Union. They were like Korean soldiers fighting for the Soviet Union during World War II. After the war, he went back to Korea and became the premier of that region that he was in, North Korea. And he started created the Democratic People's Republic, the DPRK, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which was basically, they said it was communist, but it wasn't communist. It was authoritarian di- dictatorship. And so he created this little nation, the DPRK. And then his first like big act as the leader of the DPRK was to completely destroy all opposition he had murderously with guns. Yeah. Yeah, he shot everybody and subjugated the entire population and created this almost like religious zealotry culture around him and his family name. It's fucked. Like 
they, the, to this day, the, the North Korean people believe some wacky shit about their leaders. Like Kim Il, Kim Il Jong could drive a car at the age of three. And the first time Kim Il Sung ever played the, a game of golf, he shot 38 under par. Like it, it's, it's ridiculous. Little stupid shit like that to make them believe that they're these like God Kings. Uh, like, like there was a, vi- there was a video of Kim, Kim Jong Un, who is the current dude, uh, flying an airplane. And they were like, yeah, he knows how to fly that. <laughs> he knows how to fly 727. Yeah. He's cool. He's good. Yeah. He flies that. That's what he does. He, did they teach him? No, no, nobody taught him shit. He, yeah, no, he just knows why. Uh, cause he's like fucking Supreme leader. You know, like he's like this brilliant supreme leader dude. Yeah, he's fucking, yeah, he's amazing. Does he poop? No, he never poops. He just consumes everything, burns it right up into energy. Yeah, that's what they did to those people. They, this dude, Kim Il-sung, was so effective in creating this like airtight, loctite fucking world for the North Koreans. They still believe that to this day. It's 2019. We have, we're living in the age of the internet. The age of fucking Instagram. <laughs> information is accessible everywhere. It's it's literally the, the world is overcome by all the information we have access to. And now it's like fucking still in, in, in North Korea. These people believe that Kim Jong-un didn't take shits. Anyway, that might just be from a movie. I don't know. I, I believe it is truth because it's hilarious. Anyway. After the war, he founded the Democratic People's Republic of of North Korea, and his first big act after destroying all of his enemies, I guess his second big act, was to invade South Korea. And this is probably why he's the a douche. One of the biggest reasons he's a douchebag, besides the myriad, the the, the never ending list of why this cocksucker is such a terrible person, he invaded South Korea and kicked off. The Korean War. So the Korean War ran from 1950 to 1953. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible conflict that ended the lives of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, completely altered the political and social landscape of its region. Uh, basically what happened was the North Koreans invaded South Korea. Uh, the South Korean military that had been built up by the United States military, as well as the United States military and the UN, repel his forces all the way back past the 38th parallel, which was the dividing line of North and South Korea into North Korea, almost all the fucking way to China. And the only reason that Kim Il-sung and his whole little piece of shit regime didn't go tits up was because the Chinese decided to back him and, and some of the Russians too. And, and, and they ended up pushing, uh, you know, the United States military back South all the way to the fucking like, uh, in area and then you know the united states was able to make a push forward and the go read about the korean war i'm not doing that (laughs) i'm not going through that whole thing right now but it was bad it was a shitty conflict and it it resulted in a lot of people dead and it was all because kim il-sung wanted to seize the entire korean peninsula and the united states says the united states and its ally the united nations said no fucking way dude you're not having it the South Korean peoples were becoming very democratic. They were free. They were having elections. Like, like no, no, fuck you, dude. And so uh, it's a lot more complicated than that, obviously. It was a whole war that we fought, but and, and then the South Koreans fought, the UN fought, but he did that. After we beat their ass in the Korean War, uh, he held on to control until his death in 1994. So he was the leader of North Korea for like 40-some years. And during his time he created this ideology of the Juche, 
which means self-reliance. They wanted to come up with this. They had this idea for a nation where it was like everything happens in North Korea, all of it, total self-reliance, except that that didn't fucking work because it's a tiny little peninsula, peninsular nation with not a lot of natural resources. And eventually they had to receive aid from fucking everybody, including the United States of America. And so this little cocksucker dies in 1994 and hands control over to his little bastard son, Kim Jong-il. And Kim Jong-il declares his father, get this, what was, I have it written down here, the eternal president of the republic yeah i'm sure i'm fucking sure kimmy i'm pretty sure yeah yeah that's gonna last your piece of shit dead father is gonna be the eternal leader of the republic for all time eternally bullshit as soon as that goddamn country gets a real dsl connection and and finds out what Pornhub is all about they're gonna can the whole goddamn republic and be like we're starving we are starving in this fucking country let's go i fucking done because they are they're starving the north korean people are starving right now and not only are they starving, they're shooting their fucking citizens. They're putting their citizens into these goddamn labor fucking concentration death camps for political, you know, dissidents or whatever. It's it's a fucked up, miserable country. You've all seen it. You've seen it on the news. North Korea is a nightmare. And the whole fucking thing exists because of Kim Il-sung, that piece of shit. Yo, by the way, what is it about North Koreans and their stupid fucking hair? Go take go Google Kim Il-sung. Look, take a look at him in his later years. He's got these two like black boofs on either side of his goofy head, where he's like, "I couldn't bald gracefully, so I grew these two muffins on either side of my head like Princess Fucking Leia." Except that they're they're more towards the top to accentuate the fact that I'm bald as shit and stupid looking. And then his son Kim Il Jong, Kim Jong Il, I'm sorry, Kim Jong Il, as made famous by Team America World Police, Kim Jong Il had this like fucking bouffon poofy lofty hairdo and his son Kim Jong Un the current little prick in office is you know moving that fucking ball down the field they look like idiots but their people just soak it right up and it's all based on these bullshit stories of how great and glorious and and perfect and impossibly talented and skillful and wonderful these fucking leaders are three of them now Kim Kim Il Sung Kim Jong Il and then Kim Jong Un I'm a cocksucker, are all the same family, and they're all a bunch of douchebags. So anyway, the fucking, the biggest douchebag of them all, though, is Kim Il-sung, the fucking original, the daddy, the Papa Grande. He's the leader of them all, and I I would just like to take a moment on my podcast to say to Mr. Kim Il-sung, if he's listening, if you're a ghost and you can hear this fucking podcast, I would just like to say to your little fucked up ass, Kim Il-sung, you're an enormous douchebag, and so are your fucking stupid little kids and their stupid hairdos. I wish you'd have never existed. The world would be a better place, you fucking colossal, ugly little douchebag. Yeah, so fuck you, Kim Il-sung, and fuck the rest of the Kims along with him. Fucking, oh God, it's bad, dude. That's a nation that needs to come to a close. And And I'll tell you... That segues into my next topic because every every month when I do this type of episode, I do a topic of discussion. And so my topic of discussion this month is South Korea, my time there. I, I lived there for a year. And that's why I wanted to talk about how much of a piece of shit Kim Il-sung is, is because he started the nightmare of North Korea. Meanwhile, just south of that whole miserable, fucking awful, horrific location exists one of the coolest places I've ever been in my life. South Korea, the land of the morning calm. And uh, I fucking, I loved 
Korea. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I, 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 when I was, let, let's see, the last episode, I told you guys about my career in the army. And there are a lot of like pieces and facets to that that I would like to flesh out more. One of them is my time in South Korea. So I'm going to talk about South Korea. Um, but first, oh, that popped. I need some nicotine. I, I'm not smoking right now. I'm vaping. So uh, it just blew shit like all in my fucking throat. Does that sound like a robot dick? Douche flute all up in this bitch. All right. Yeah. Hey, listen, man. Uh, I'm not going to really edit this episode. I'm a little drunk. I've been kind of cutting it on the fly. And uh, Justin, that fucking um, vet larceny, man, it's good. I like it. I like it a whole lot. So thanks again. Uh, I'm a little drunk, so I'm going to tell you about, and I think that's probably fitting. It's fitting that I'm a little drunk for my uh, my story about South Korea. Because South Korea was, was, it was a lot of drinking, guys. It was, god damn, it was a lot of drinking. I, I think if there was one, there were, if I had to like, like, ex- describe my mentality, my, my mind state during my year tour duty in South Korea, it would involve just a couple of emotions at, on the large scale. You know what I mean? Like, I was mostly tired because I was always working and training, but I was drunk a lot. Because that's how you have fun in South Korea. And I was also kind of homesick. Yeah, that, that got worse as, as I was there longer. Because, you know, Asia's awesome. Korea's awesome. But it's just not the United States of America. And so it was it was just a little too foreign. And I ended up getting very homesick. But to cope with that, I went back to number two, drinking. So, uh, yeah. yeah, Korea was a... I was pretty wet, as my buddy Nick would say, the whole time I was there. Korea. How did I get there? Well, I joined the army, as y'all well know. And uh, while I was in the service, my first tour duty, uh, my first active tour duty was at South Korea. It was uh, uh, based at Camp Hovey was the name of the joint. And Camp Hovey. So there's um, there's one big base up towards the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, because that still exists. Right. Like North Korea, South Korea are still separated by a demilitarized zone, which is literally just like no man's land. It's uh at some places it's real thin. It's like a, a couple hundred meters. At some places it's real thick. It's like a mile, and it's been mined. And there's barricades. And I've been up there and seen it. It's 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 no place you want to be. There's this one little bridge we used to see all the time where there was like a sign like if you go out there you're gonna get shot in the fucking face. And so you didn't, you didn't do that. But um yeah, North Korea and South Korea are still completely separated by this DMZ and and still technically at war. There's no war going on, although the North Koreans like to take shots at the South all the time. They like to shoot across the border, sometimes with artillery, sometimes with rockets, sometimes with just an AK-47. doesn't matter. They're little dickheads like shoot South Koreans. So anyway, they're still at war, basically. They're working on peace. North Korea is kind of starting to crumble. It's really starting to show its cracks because Kim Jong-un, the most recent of the little Kim turds, is he was exposed to Western culture. I'm pretty sure he went to school in like Geneva or the UK or something. I can't remember exactly where, but he went to school in a westernized society and he like loves Dennis Rodman. So Dennis Rodman's been there to hang out with Kim Jong-un, you know, a couple times, a little more bourbon. He's so cool. It's very warm. All right. Um, but yeah, uh, I got to Korea in 2008. I just got out of AIT. They gave me the orders. I, I got on a plane, 
big whirlwind adventure for 22-year-old me fucking hopping on a 747 called Korean Air. It was Korean Air. All the flight attendants, by the way, are like tall, leggy, gorgeous women. They I, they must hand pick them. They have to because they were all they all looked like models. And I get on this fucking airplane and like we're I had never flown like this commercially. I had been on like little commercial flights, like one or two, like tiny little airplanes. I like puddle jumpers, but I had never been on like a big bird. So I get on this Korean Air seven forty seven and they strap me in and we take off. And at like cruise altitude, they were like, Okay, you can move about the cabin. Would you like a drink? And so this lady like brings a little cart up to my fucking seat and she's a beautiful Korean lady. And she's like, would you like a drink? And I was like, yeah, I can have a whiskey Coke. So she gives me a whiskey Coke and I drink it and she comes back. I was like, can I have another? She's like, yeah. And I'm fucking hammered two drinks. I'm shit faced. And the reason that I was drunk, a lot of people don't know this, but when commercial airliners, especially the big boys, they, they, they do this a little bit higher. When they pressurize the cabin of the airplane, they don't pressurize it to sea level because that would place too much strain on the fuselage, the pressure vessel of the aircraft. Instead, they usually pressurize the airplane to an altitude higher than that. And so on really long, high international flights where the aircraft has to be pressurized for long periods of time, they'll do it to a real, a much higher altitude to place less stress on the aircraft. And and in this case, usually it's around nine to 10,000 feet. So my advice to you is grab your fucking nearest bottle of bourbon or whatever, walk your ass up a 10,000 foot mountain and take a drink and see how quickly you get wasted. Cause that's what happened to me. I got shit canned and two drinks. And I remember I was like, what? And so I passed out fucking knock right out 16 hour flight all the way in. I remember at one point though, really cool experience. I got up and I did actually move about the cabin. And when I did, I, I went to the back door near the tail of the airplane and I just leaned into it and this I remember I looked at this flight attendant who was nearby I was like hey can I lean and just like look out she's like yeah it's totally cool you're not going to tear that thing open it's pressurized to a weight that you can't manipulate as a human being so it's safe anyway I look out the fucking window and I'm over Siberia a lot of the time when aircraft do international flights they'll do what's called a great arc where they fly up and over um like they kind of go north up and over <laughs> the ocean <laughs> to get to, you know, Asia. <laughs> it's a really stupid, shitty way of describing that. But yeah, they do this like arc where they go way up over, you know, like Russia, China, and then down into the destination, which was South Korea. And I, I looked down. I remember was really cool. I was in the back of the seat on this plane. They had this screen and you could see the GPS location of your airplane. And so I could tell, like, I'm over Siberia right now. I want to see what that shit looks like. Let me tell you, it is vast and desolate. I mean, one of the things about seeing the planet from the air is you realize just how empty most of it is. Like, we have our little cities and our little towns and our little roads, which dot and pockmark and scar the landscape. But for the most part, the world is a vastly empty location. And Siberia is like the king of that. It was just a sea of mountains and hills and shit and trees. And there weren't no signs of people out there, boys. It was just desolate as fuck. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Kind of reminded me of, like, Montana. The flyover states out west, they're similar to that. There's a lot of land out west in the United States that's just uninhabited. There's just fucking nothing going on out there. But anyway, I saw Siberia, saw China, thought that was pretty cool, landed in Korea. I get into Korea, Incheon, 2 a.m., and the first thing that I experience is a, a swamp of fucking 16-year-old Korean high school girls. That happened to me. I got 
I got bushwhacked by this huge group of Korean schoolgirls who like rushed up to me and they wanted a picture with me. And they, t- I mean, I, you know, when I think about this, it almost feels insane. Like this, this can't be real. This didn't happen, but it totally did. Like I was just standing there and suddenly out of nowhere, a swarm of Korean girls just like runs right the fuck up to me. And they're all like, Oh, picture, picture. And so I take a picture with these kids. I, I they, they made me put my fingers up like peace. And I was just surrounded by Koreans and they took a picture with me and then they, they fucked off. They just left. And I, I remember thinking, like, what the fuck just happened in my whole life? Like, what in God's name? And then the second thing that I thought was they sent me to this fucking country. The army picked me, of all people, a dude, a fucking typical white dude with a super Asian fetish, like, <laughs> over overly sexually energized goofball of a human being with too much time and money on his hands. They fucking sent me to this country. How, who, who fucking signed the order on this? This is insane. I shouldn't be here. This is going to get bad. And it did. It did. It got bad. I did bad things in Korea. I'm, I'm, I'm be honest. <laughs> I do, but everybody does. Listen, Incheon, cool, landed. Kitties wanted a picture. Click. It was fun. Bailed out. I ended up at, uh, I spent the night at camp, Oh no. Um what's that place called? The Dragon Hill Hotel. The Dragon Hill Lodge. Dragon Hill Hotel at Yongsan, which is a uh an American little base, little base, real little in Itaewon, which is a uh, the most westernized subdistrict of Seoul, the capital city. Incheon isn't really far from Seoul. But I landed in Incheon. I spent the night at uh what what is is it just called Yongsan? And I spent the night at Yongsan in the Dragon Hill Lodge, which is a hotel there. It's famous. And I remember, like, at one point, I decided to go down to the bar because they had a bar at Yongsan. Oh, man, just talking about this is making me so nostalgic. I can see it inside my head. I go down to this bar, the Dragon Hill Lodge bar, and I had a, I had a whiskey, I had a bourbon. And I think I had a jack because I didn't have like a real appreciation for good bourbon at the time. But I take my drink and I go and I sit out and I just stare into Seoul, the city of Seoul. And I see a sea of lights, a sea of buildings, a sea of people and faces. And it was one of the most exciting things I'd ever felt in my life. Because here I am, I'm this like 22-year-old United States soldier. I'm on the ground. I, I, I'm fucking finally free of basic training and AIT. I'm free of the leadership, free of cadre. And they've literally just been like, okay, here's where you're at. Here's where you're staying. Here's your hotel room. Fucking do whatever you want for the next 48 hours until we send you to your in-processing station. And so for 48 hours, I literally just kicked it at the Dragon Hill Lodge. And I, at that night, it was a crystal clear night. I could see all the way across Korea. It was beautiful. And it was, it was a beautiful place, but it was also a beautiful moment in my life. Something I'll never forget. I was proud. I felt like 007 or something. I felt like I was on this great world adventure to go out here and experience. So the next day... They move us from uh, Youngsan to Camp Stanley, which is where I did my in-processing. And that's where they they give you all your gear. They give you all your equipment for, you know, your, your tour of duty there. And then they... Um, and they tell you where you're going. And so I got my orders for Camp Hovey. They, they sent me to Camp Hovey. And like I said before, the northernmost base, big base in South Korea that we have is called Camp Casey. On the backside of that, there's a little base that's like connected by a road called Camp Hovey. And it's got like, you know, 
it it might be a quarter or less the size of Camp Casey. It's it's pretty small, and we had maybe two brigades out there or something, maybe less. Anyway, I got attached to a br- brigade support battalion, one twenty fifth BSB um, brigade support battalion, and it was uh, I think that was that one twenty fifth in Korea. I think so. Anyway, I was in Delta Company, Delta three O Deuce. No, it was the three. Okay, all right, I fucked up. So it was Echo one two five or Echo one four one when I was in El Paso, in Korea. I was Delta Company three O second brigade support battalion and we were attached to the four seven cav the seventh cavalry regiment the fourth of the seventh um which is the same cavalry regiment that custer was a member of yeehaw uh the 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 four seven cav had this um their their mascot was a dude named gary owen and so like it all the four seven cav like get together thingies the 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 close-up formations they would say sevens first out front gary owen and and because we were a bunch of dicks in the support company we would say gary coleman and i thought that shit was hilarious but anyway i was in the delta 302 deuce um for the first six months of my tour duty in korea Maybe it was like seven. I was a fucking truck driver, uh, which was my MOS. I was I was part of what's known as distro platoon. So in um, Ford support companies, FSCs, uh, there's always a distribution platoon. We distribute ammunition, goods, whatever, troops. And they, for short, we call ourselves distro. And so I was in distro for like seven, eight months, maybe less, maybe like six, 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 seven, I can't remember. Anyway, all we did was go to the field. That was our job. We went to the fucking field and trained and trained and trained. And Korea is not like the regular army. It's a little different. I think I mentioned this in my last episode, but it's a lot more lax. It's laid back, but it's still a regular army. You're just like you're you're overseas. So people kind of wall out like they just do whatever they want. And that's what was going on. Like even my NCO leadership was like fucking partying like crazy. I'll never forget what a crazy. So you get there and you're not allowed. When I got to my unit, I wasn't allowed to go off post and like venture out for like a couple of weeks or something, I think. And unless I was accompanied by an NCO, and I remember this one corporal took me out. She was a nice lady who was really ugly, but she was a super sweetheart. Anyway, uh, eventually, when I finally did get to go out, the first person that took me out was one of my E5s, uh, a particular sergeant. And she was a really cool lady, really, really nice black lady, like uh, super super urban, but really, really friendly towards me. I don't want to say her name. We called her Goody, Sergeant Goody. And so Sergeant Goody like took me down to Osan Air Force Base and we got to tour Osan and we went to the shops and saw the shops and it was, it was just a really good, oh, my fucking computer just went off. I'm sorry about that. We, we, we had a really good time together and then we went back to base. Well, we didn't hang out much after that because she was an NCO and I was lower enlisted. I ended up down in Seoul one night, like, fucking months later like six months later and there was this one bar in young son or well itaewon outside of young son where everybody would go and i remember i went there and i'm like walking around shit fucking drunk and i i look up on top of the bar and there's sergeant goody and she is just fucking getting it she's like wasted and she's dancing on top of this bar all surrounded by people and she looked at me and i looked at her and she was like my squad leader at the time this chick looks at me and i look at her and we're just like oh fuck and (laughs) she comes down to me and she grabbed me by the shirt and she was like listen here leo I ain't gonna never tell nobody that you fucking took a trip down here without a pass. Long as you don't tell nobody, I was dancing on this goddamn bar. I was like, "Who else aren't moved on?" That was it. That kind of shit happened the whole time I was in Korea. Like everybody was just acting a fool because that's what Korea is. It's like this great big tour where you're overseas, you're training, training, training. You're always in the field. You're always out in the mud. Oh my god, Korean mud. 
is like a next fucking level experience of misery. It is the worst mud in the world. It's like clay. It gets up in your goddamn vehicle, especially when it's wet, and it just ruins everything. But you're out in this mud, you're out in the fucking Skeeter land when it's warm, and you're out in the goddamn frozen tundra when it's cold, and and then on the weekends, you come back from that, and what do you do? Well, you party your fucking face off. And so that's what I did. I partied my face off the whole time I was in Korea. It was really wild tour of duty because it was up and down. I was like... You know, real, real, real stern military training, training, hula, hula, running ammo, fucking working with the Cav Scouts, working with the infantry, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you'd get cut loose. You'd get back. I remember mm, 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 mm. Um, there's an experience that's it's hard to describe to someone that hasn't been through it. But you go to the field and you take all of your battle rattle, your body armor, your helmet, your rifle, whatever and you take a rucksack and a a fucking duffel bag full of like sleeping gear and shit. And you go out and you, you train like the longest one I did was like 36 days and you're out in the field this whole time and you're training, 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 you're moving ammunition, you're working a lot, you're sleeping less than you normally would. And you know, you're pounding caffeine constantly to stay on top of yourself and you train and train and train. And it's not horrible, but it's just, you know, it's, it's a high op tempo. You're working a lot. And then you, you come back and there's this thing that happens that was like one of the most beautiful moments of my life. Like I'll never forget it as long as I live is you, you come in from a really particularly dirty, muddy, shitty field and your, your uniforms are just disgusting and you're disgusting. And you know, you haven't had a shower in six days and you walk in and you put your rucksack and your duffel bag by your, your bed in the barracks bay. And then you schlep over to the fucking bathroom and you open the door and you walk in and you peel your body armor off. <laughs> Let's a Velcro. <laughs> and you kind of let that slop to the floor. Oh, fuck. And the dirt falls out of it all over the floor. And then you you unbuckle or you unzip your, your top. And there's more mud and dust in that. And it's just everything is so skanky. It's just skanky. You're skanky. Your uniform, your, your, your armor, your fucking, your ruck, everything's just gross. And you peel that off, right? You take off your top and then you sit on the toilet and you untie your combat boots and you pull those off and your feet are just nasty and you pull those dirty socks off. And it's like you have that peeled. So you know what it feels like to peel off socks that are too tight. And then. You know, you, you get the crud from in between your toes and you, you stand up and you unbuckle your ACUs and you pull off your army uniform and you just get butt ass naked. And you take a second, you look in the mirror and think, Jesus Christ, I'm fucked up. And then you jump in the shower and you turn that fucking shower on. Oh my God in heaven. Oh, the fucking water. It's all over me. Oh, and you just stare. You stare straight into the stream of water and it washes the dirt off of your face. And then you get cleaned up. You take you soap yourself and you get clean. Oh my God, I'm clean. I'm clean. You get out of the bathroom. And so what do you do? You smoke a cigarette. Oh. Fuck. Fuck. I needed this. And then you're done. Hmm. Well, guess what? It's Friday, so the next thing you do is you go to your fuck you you pile your filthy shit in a corner of the room and you go to your rack and you go to your clothes and you put on blue jeans and you grab a t-shirt and you throw it on and you do something with your hair and you fucking spray yourself with a little cologne. You put on some deodorant. You text your buddies, hey, hey John, hey Fred, let's fucking go. And the next thing you know, you're on a train to you're you're on you're at Boson Station and you're hopping on a fucking co rail and you're you're you, you the next hour and a half. Cha-ching, all the way down to Seoul and you get off 
the train. It's a packed train. Get off the train. It's like 7 o'clock by this time. It's starting to get a little dark, but not bad. And you walk you, you walk through the train station, and you want to get up onto the, the surface, the, the ground level, right? And so you, you, you walk towards the stairs, and, and there's so many people, like, hustle and bustle. But what's interesting is it's not just Koreans. There's white people, black people, people from all kinds of nations all in this district. Itaewon's cool, I mean, like that. It's, it's, it's very multicultural. And so you, you, you ascend the stairs, and then you, as you're, the transition from the stairs, like the, the subway to the street level is a religious experience because you just spent 40 goddamn days in the field. And in the time it takes to watch a Star Wars movie, you got a shower, a change, and a, and a fucking train ride. And you've gone from this like rigid army, institutionalized training environment to let's drink as much as we fucking possibly can and have sex with as many fucking girls as possible. And that's literally what it felt like. But that, 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 that transition from the subway, walking up the stairs of the subway to Itaewon to be surrounded by suddenly all of these civilians and they're all walking around and there's so many and you can hear honking horns and cars passing and there's so much life and hustle and bustle and there's bars everywhere and pretty flashy lights. It was it was mind blowing. It was mind blowing and it was it was beautiful and magical and 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 for me at that age, in that place, in that time, it was Oh man, it was everything. It was so much fun. It was so much goddamn fun. And I did that as often as possible. I ended up going to Itaewon and Seoul just a lot. Just a lot a lot. And it, there was Itaewon was a very Americanized district of South Korea. And there was a lot of Western influence there. They had things like McDonald's and they even had a fucking Hooters and um, they had just a lot of Americanized. I remember they had a hard rock cafe. It was one of the first places I ever went. They also had these really nice hotels that you could stay for super cheap. You get a hotel and just fucking chill out. Um, it was great. It was, it was, Itaewon was just a lot of fun. There was a bar there called the, the Gecko that's ultra famous. I've been to a few times. There's another bar called the Wolfhound. Oh man, I really hope someone from Korea hears this and and remembers the Wolfhound. It was one of my favorite places to go because it was like an Irish pub smack in the middle of South Korea. I have a really good memory I want to share with you guys about South Korea Um, uh, involving two of my buddies who I hope are listening, Luke and, and Carl. And even even Jeebus Cox, who I don't think is listening to this anymore, he's a buddy of mine from the army that was a part of these shenanigans. But the thing about Korea is that everybody parties really hard. So um, there's a lot of English teachers in South Korea that are from the UK, from Ireland, from the United States, English-speaking nations, where English is their first language. And so these people are literally contracted and brought to Korea to teach civilians how to speak English. And it, I think it largely starts with children. But anyway, there's a there's a large number of English teachers in South Korea. And so you run into them from time to time. And I remember one night, <laughs> I had a MySpace date with a Korean girl who wanted to meet up and well, go to a hotel room and fuck each other. And so <laughs> that was the plan for the night. And so I go down to Seoul to meet this girl. And I think I was by myself when this happened. But I'm waiting for this girl, and I decided, fuck it. She's not here yet. I was waiting on her. I went to a bar to have a drink, and I ran into this pack of Caucasian hooligans. And I was like, what is up with these fucking guys? And so I start talking to them, and, and, and I told them what I was doing. They laughed, and we had a good time. They were like, you want to do some shots? I was like, yeah, let's do some shots. So we start drinking, and we start getting drunk as fuck. It's a really good time. And so, guys, 
Carl, Luke, I don't remember all the details, man. I was, I, I just remember we got drunk together. And then before I leave, they were like, you got to bring her by us. Walk her by us when she gets here so we can like pretend like we're, we're fucking, we just want to see her. I was like, all right, cool. So I meet this girl and I drag her by my, my newfound friends. And they all were like acting like hooligans, being silly. They, they said, hey, what's going on? You guys having a good time? Blah, blah, blah. Pretending like they didn't know me. And then when I get to the hotel room, it's really funny. She was like, those guys knew you, didn't they? I was like, yeah, they totally knew me. <laughs> so, but that actually turned out to be like one of the freakier nights of sex I've ever had. Like that chick wanted me to do some real sick shit. She, she asked me to slap her in the face really, really fucking hard. And uh, at one point was like, I want you to punch me. And I was like, no, I'm not going to fucking punch you. And she was like, no, I want you to hit me in the face. I was like, no, there's no fucking way I'm going to hit you in the face. You're a woman. I don't want to go to jail for giving you a shiner. And she was like, it doesn't fucking matter, pussy. And I was like, what? And she was like, hit me in the face pussy and I was like I'm not gonna she was like do it I was like no she was like do it I was like alright fine and so I gave her a 50%er right on the jaw and she was like oh <laughs> and she went wild on me after that so I guess you know some chicks are into some fucking weird shit and she, she just wanted to be punched so I gave it to her anyway wouldn't do it again didn't like it uh, not my thing uh, but anyway that night was the uh, beginning of a friendship that has lasted Two friendships that have lasted since that would have been like 2009. It's now 2019, and I'm still friends with Luke and Carl. They comment on all my statuses and shit. <laughs> that's how we stay in touch primarily is through social media. But like, I recently got Luke into keto diet. I hope that's doing well for you, by the way. Luke, you're looking real slim, buddy. You've lost a lot of weight. I'm real proud of you. Uh, so yeah, that that Korea gave me that friendship. At a later date, I we hung out with them again. I brought my buddy Cox. And we all had a really wild ass night where we were dancing and, and there's videos of it on Facebook to this day. Um, but yeah, Seoul, Seoul was always one of those places I went to have the best possible time in Korea. It always was. It was, it was a wonderful experience to be able to go down to Seoul and party really hard. Um, and all the friends that I made there were, uh, you know, spectacular, spectacular friends, John, Fred, who I mentioned before, those are two of my good buddies from, from, uh, Delta three Deuce. I miss you guys. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're listening to the podcast. Um, you know, I had a lot of good experiences in South Korea. When I wasn't down in Seoul getting trashed, I was, you know, either on base working, doing training stuff, um, doing lots of gunnery. I did a lot of gunnery in South Korea, operated machine guns, and I got to gun the Bradley at one point. And I, I drove a lot of vehicles while I was in Korea. Uh, one of the other things I did was... was um, I did some hand-to-hand combat training, which was fun, like combatives and stuff. That was neat, and boxing and stuff like that. Did a lot of weightlifting. That's Korea is where I got my like true introduction to weightlifting because I I'd, I'd lifted with my buddy Dave before I joined the army, but Korea was where I really started to hit the gym hard, and also discovered supplements like Jack 3D. You guys remember Jack 3D? That was a, it was a pre-workout that you could take and and you'd see purple spots after you took it because it was like loaded with so many probably illegal chemicals, and and then your workout would just be insane. You would. So much energy it was like caffeine fucking on steroids but not actual steroids mm. we did have some dudes in korea that were doing steroids there was this one fat fuck sergeant named juan sergeant juan everybody hated sergeant juan he uh i remember at one point like we we started finding these little doodles and in porta shitters and and bathrooms all over the bases in south korea it would just be like a circle a big round circle with a little circle on top for a head and then like four stick limbs and it would say Juan in the middle. <laughs> and we all knew they were talking about fat ass Sergeant Juan. 
to this day, I don't know who started that trend. Anyway, um, my, I had two different roommates while I was in Korea. So the, the, the barracks situation in Korea is totally different from regular army. It's like you're in um, a two-man bay, and what we would do is we would separate our beds with wall lockers. Other than that, the room was empty. So we would use these wall lockers to separate each other so we couldn't see one another. So it felt like we had our own little space, but we shared a, ba- a bathroom. We had two beds on either side of the wall lockers and then a bathroom. And my first roommate was a dude named uh, Barn Barnhart, <laughs> who was a total dipshit and had a juicy girlfriend um, for a long time. Oh, shit, juicies. Yeah, I got to explain that. I'll explain that in a minute. But he had a girlfriend off post. It was a juicy girl. And I, I didn't have to deal with him for like nine months. And then I and then I had my buddy Kevin Nelson, who's oh, I shouldn't have said his full name. Anyway, Nelson. <laughs> he's sorry about that. He's he's probably listening. Hey, 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 Nelson. Fuck you. Uh, He's he was a good buddy. We you know, I, I had a couple different roommates. The rooming situation was tight. The barracks were fucked up. I remember, I'll tell you a funny story about Nelson. One time we had to, you know, every now and then the leadership, the NCO leadership of the company would inspect the barracks inspect your barracks rooms to to see what you're up to, see if you're cleaning your shit. And we smoked. Me and Nelson smoked the whole time we were. I can still remember the smell of that nasty-ass barracks room we had. But we would smoke in our barracks bay. And uh, whenever um, first sergeant would come around to in, inspect the barracks, Nelson would brew a pot of coffee. And the first sergeant, I remember the first sergeant walked in one time. We had this really cool first sergeant. And he was like, so... Uh, did you guys brew a pot of coffee to cover the smell of cigarettes? And we both like laughed. Ha ha, no stuff for Sergeant. And he was like, yeah, whatever. And he left. But he passed us because he knew. Well, it's really hard to make soldiers not smoke in their barracks bay, especially when it's like fucking negative 22 degrees outside. That's another thing about Korea. The weather is crazy. The summers are hot and muggy. There's a whole monsoon season. There's this one time of the year where you get this yellow sand from the Gobi Desert. There's the fucking, the winters are brutally, brutally cold, and there's snow, and it's just miserable. Yeah, Korea's wild when it comes to its weather, man. So, so yeah, that was a drag. But, but yeah, you know, like we smoked in the barracks. Fuck it. Who, who, what are you going to do? You're going to kick me out over cigarettes? Eat shit. But so yeah, the living conditions weren't terrible. They weren't awesome. They were just really compact and kind of shitty. I I got into PC gaming while I was in Korea. My brother had been into it for a long time, and I I had like used his. But I I started my own like upkeep and build when I was in Korea, and it was because you know you've got this tiny barracks bay that you share with another dude and it's not big enough for a full entertainment system, but it's good enough for a PC. And in a PC, you can play video games, you can watch porn, (laughs) you can fucking watch movies, you can listen to music. So I got a nice gaming PC. They built me one at the PX and I had a nice surround sound system for it. And it was, I've, I've literally kept a gaming PC ever since I still have one in my room for my VR. Now I've just upgraded it over the years and now it's, it's not the same computer. It was (laughs) when I started out, but you know, I, I, that's where that trend, to begin. So that's how I kept myself entertained. Um, you know, when we weren't going to Seoul to drink, we would go right off post. There's a town, there's two towns outside of Camp Casey and Camp Hovey. There's Dong Dushan and there's Tokari. More bourbon. There's Dong Dushan and there's Tokari. TDC is what we call Tong Dushan for short, TDC. And there's this place called the TDC Strip. And so the TDC strip is a strip of about 60, 70 bars along a mile that runs about a road that runs about a mile. And these bars are all mostly juicy bars. There's some regular bars, but it's mostly juicy bars. And for those of you who don't know what a juicy bar is, it is a den of ill repute. (laughs) 
it's a whorehouse of sorts. It's not a typical whorehouse, although Korea has those. They're called the pink lights. They're instead of the red light district, Korea has the pink light district. Basically the same thing, window shopping. You walk up, you pay $60 to get laid. But then there's this other place called the Juicy Bars, and they're all over Korea. And what a Juicy Bar is, it's a bar. And it's stocked with performers who are women. And they're all kinds of nationalities. They're Filipino, they're Russian, they're Korean. But mostly where I was at, they were Filipino. And these girls have been contracted to act as performers, singers. And um, they can't leave the Juicy Bar. They're literally held at the Juicy Bar by contract. 24 seven. They live above the fucking place. And there's like 20 of them per bar, 10, 10 to 20 of them per bar. And so you walk in. Usually you don't even walk in. You'll see them out on the street beckoning for you to come in. Hey, GI. Hey, soldier. Hey, come on in, have a drink. And so you see a pretty juicy girl and you walk up to her and you take her inside and you go, you get a drink and she sits down. She says, I can sit with you. She sits with you for a few minutes and warms you up. And then she says, I can only stay if you buy me a drink. And you say, well, how much is the drink? Well, it's $20. Oh, what do I get for 20 bucks? You get 30 minutes of my time. Oh, okay. And a young, impressionable, stupid soldier who doesn't want to work to get the attention of a female will pay the 20 bucks. And then the next thing you know, you've spent a half hour with a cute little Filipino chick rubbing your hand or whispering pretty nothings into your ear. Now, if you want to fuck them... <laughs> You can. As coarse as that is, it's true. You can you can sleep with these women. And and how that works is, it used to be you had to get to know the Ajima, the old lady running the show, because there's always a house mother named Ajima, which is old woman in Korean. And Ajima, she sells the drinks, and she also sells the nights out. So if you want to, let's say you meet a cute little Korean girl named, oh, I don't know, Jessica. I met a cute little Korean, or not a Korean girl, a Filipino juicy girl named Jessica one time. She was gorgeous. She was like the Kate Beckinsale of Filipino ladies. She worked at this juicy bar, and she wanted me to buy her night out, and I didn't know what that meant. And so I asked an NCO that was there. <laughs> I said, hey, sorry, what does it mean to buy her night out? He was like, listen, if you want to bang these girls, you got to get in good with Ajima, and then you, uh, you pay Ajima like 150 American dollars to have... Juicy girl for the rest of the night. And that means you get to take her to a hotel room and do whatever you want. And now listen, I know what you're thinking. That's prostitution. Yep, that's exactly what it is. And literally every soldier I knew, myself included, partook of it. Because, well, uh, we're awful, disgusting, sexually driven animal human beings. And I, I, I would never do it again. But it's something that took place in Korea. And it's something that everybody participated in. And the interesting thing is that a lot of the time, soldiers would fall in love with these girls and then wife them up. And they would try really, really hard to get a GI to marry them. That's what happened to my roommate, Barnhart. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with finding love in South Korea. And there's nothing wrong with finding love in a girl who is basically a sex worker in South Korea. We're all just human beings looking for happiness. And I know people who have relationships with girls from that walk of life. And it all worked out for them. And that's fantastic. I'm really glad that it did. But it was human trafficking. And it was fucked up. And I was, I was too young and too naive to really recognize what I was a part of. But I was a part of it. And most soldiers that have ever been there probably have been too. 
I mean, it's just, it's one of the nasty little parts of being in the military, one of the nasty little parts of being in Korea. So that happened. And, uh, you know, uh, would I change it? Uh, probably not. It, it taught me something about the world that I live in, and it taught me something about the value of, you know, relationships with the opposite sex and the the my, my relationship with women in general. But yeah, juicy bars are ubiquitous all across South Korea. They're everywhere, and so are the pink light districts. So sex as... Uh, sex as a business is very popular in South Korea. Now, here is something that I learned from that experience that is probably going to be unpopular with a lot of people, but it's something that I believe is truth. Human trafficking is bad. Human trafficking is horrible. People should not be press-ganged into any kind of service. They shouldn't be trafficked into any kind of sexual service or whatever, slavery, whatever. But I do think that sex work should be legal. I think that people should be able to pay for prostitutes if they want. I think that people shouldn't be prosecuted or persecuted for conducting that kind of business or behavior uh, as long as they're safe and maybe regulated and, and medically healthy and safe. But I've always believed that prostitution is something that should be legal because it's just fucking sex, dude. It's just people getting off. We all need an outlet. Imagine how many people would would have a healthier sex life if they had access to sex workers. People that need that kind of affection but can't readily access it. Or maybe they're just not generically attractive enough to have that kind of relationship with a woman. Who knows? I just, I feel like it's something that should be legal and so does the state of Nevada, so fuck you. <laughs> I just I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You know, I think there there are a lot of countries in the world that have sex work and 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 sex businesses as as a regular part of their their country and economy and and everybody's happy with it. So I think eventually the United States should move towards that. I think a lot of the laws and rules that exist in our country to control and manipulate the populace are based in old school ways of thinking and old school morality that that doesn't really apply anymore. And I think sex work is one of those things. So I'm I'm fully in support of sex work. I'm I'm fully in support of uh legal, regulated, healthy prostitution. I think that's something that should exist. And I know that's not going to be a very popular opinion with people, but that's just how I feel. And I learned that while I was in Korea, that there was a lot of that that was that was watched and 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 sort of regulated and people you know, they used it as an outlet to get rid of that sexual frustration or that sexual energy that they needed to in a healthy way, in a way that didn't damage or scar or hurt anyone. I just, you know, the human trafficking part of it's fucking disgusting and needs to go. But, um, yeah, that, that, that experience definitely, it, it, it opened my eyes to how, uh, that kind of business might be good for a society. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I just think that it's something that we should pursue. So yeah, Korea was a uh, Korea was a place of of <laughs> a lot of hedonistic behavior, a lot of drinking, a lot of sex, a lot of training, a lot of. It was really intense, man. It was an intense tour of duty. But but when I'm talking about the Korean people, and the people, oh excuse me, I burped. That was that was mostly bourbon. The people that I met while I was in Korea and the Korean the Korean nation. It's one of the best places I've ever been in my life. I love the Korean people. They were they were kind and they were fun and they were they were welcoming to Americans. Some of them didn't like us and there were protests against our presence, but for the most part it was a very uh warm and welcome feeling being in Korea. They wanted us there. They needed us there. Now listen, a lot of people are under the 
under the impression that the United States makes up a majority share of the boots on the ground in South Korea. That is simply not true. The North, the, the North Koreans are a very real threat to the South. And the North Koreans have lined the North Korean border with, I think, 15,000 pieces of heavy and mobile artillery. They've also got, you know, nuclear devices pointed at South Korea. So along the North Korean border, there are millions of South Korean troops, troops, literal millions. They've got tanks, they've got machine guns, and they're just as well, if not better trained than American military personnel. In fact, service in South Korea is compulsory. You have to do it. Everybody, every, it's, it's, a, it's a draft that every able-bodied male between the age of like 20, 18 and 20 has to go and serve their country. And so they do. Some people stay in, some people don't. Now, there are a portion of those... Uh, soldiers, South Korean soldiers that work, that get attached to and end up living with and working with the American military. And they're called Katusas, Korean augmentation to the United States Army. I had a bunch of Katusas um, when I was in uh, Delta 3 Odus. Uh, I had one guy named Joe who was my supply buddy. And then I had, you know, there were a couple of dudes. Um, there was Kim and there was Big Head Kim and there was Little Kim. <laughs> Kim's a very common name in South Korea. I had a lot of really good buddies that were South Korean fellows who I kind of remained in touch with on social media since. Um, and it was a really good learning experience to be, uh, you know, surrounded by these guys and have that, that cultural, uh, meshing of American and Korean soldiers. And I learned a lot about their nation and their world and what their, their life is like. They're actually, Korea is a very developed, very, very first world country. Now it wasn't a long time ago. It wasn't after the Korean war, but we helped them develop their nation. And so now it's a very, very first world technologically advanced country. And a lot of, uh, a lot of computer and self cellular technology that we have comes from Korea. I think Samsung is a Korean company. Uh, uh, Hyundai and Kia are Korean car manufacturer. So, you know, we're very, we're very, um, intertwined in our societies at that point. The, the South Koreans love Americans. And so they were always really, really good to me. And I was always really appreciative of the experiences that I had with, you know, the, the people of South Korea. It was a beautiful place. It was a beautiful country. Um, and I highly recommend anybody to go and live there and explore South Korea for a year. If you can be an English teacher or, or, or if you're in the military, try to get that tour of duty. Or if you're not, just go visit. It's, it's awesome. South Korea was a wonderful place. The people are hearty and the food is interesting and different. And, but there's also, there's also cuisine and, um, cultural experiences from many other nations available in South Korea. It became kind of a hub of, of, of Asia for nations, um, from all over the world, the peoples of those nations to meet and congregate and so you know south korea is a truly fascinating place and i had so many wonderful experiences there and i met lots of really great people i met lots of really great soldiers i did a lot of really interesting and, and intense training while i was there i learned a lot about um combat skills and how to work weapon systems and you know the the, the varying types of uh tactics in combat and that kind of thing. You know, I had, a, I had a really good experience militarily as well as a really good experience uh, socially, being out and about and, and partying and, and having great times with all my buddies in Seoul and Itaewon and uh, Apushan and Gagnam. Gagnam, you know that song? Opa Gagnam style. Gagnam's a real place. It's a district in Seoul, kind of like uh, the Bronx is in New York. Gagnam is in Seoul, South Korea. Seoul's huge, by the way. Seoul's monster city. I think like 11... 15 million people or something packed into this super dense urban area. But 
yeah, the uh, the entire experience of being in South Korea was an absolute treat. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, I, I I certainly loved it. And, well, you know, going back to Kim Il-sung and, and, and the DPRK, the North Koreans, I, I had the experience of observing North Korea while I was there. And there's a place where the border of North and South Korea is separated by a water mass. I think it's like a, 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 a delta of the river. And... The, the Han River, maybe. And it, 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 anyway, it's you, you go to this observation station and you look across the river or the delta to the North Korean side and they have set up a false village. It's a fake village and it's got a bunch of buildings, a school, a factory, a pharmacy and all this shit. And it's all fake. And every day it's they, they bus in the fucking civilians that live there and they hang out and they put on a show for the South Koreans to see how prosperous and happy and, and populated North Korea is. And it's all a lie. It's all a fucking lie. They're all surrounded by guys with AK-47s and you just know if they don't put on the right show, they're going to catch a bullet in the brain. It's all a lie. Everybody knows North Korea is starving. And that whole thing about Juche, the fucking the self-reliance, it's all bullshit. They 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 can't survive on their own. If they did, their entire country would starve. They they'd they'd all die from famine because they can't produce anything. They don't they, they don't produce enough food in in North Korea. They they rely on aid from places like Russia and the United States. And and so every now and then they'll rattle their their little saber and they'll they'll fucking they'll you know threaten they'll shoot off a rocket. They shot off a couple while I was there. And they'll 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 fucking they'll act an ass and then they'll be like, "We'll stop if you'll give us more aid." And so then the United States gives them a bunch of food aid and then they calm their tits. And it's a cycle. And so now, you know, North Korea has been talking to Trump about, you know, pacifying themselves and giving up the ghost. And I don't think they're going to do it. I think they're just going to continue to play the same little fucking North Korea game they always have. But we can't get involved in military action there because, remember I told you, there are 15,000 pieces of heavy artillery pointed at Seoul and military installations, American and South Korean military installations on the southern side. So if 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 anybody ever attacks North Korea, they have enough weapons and ammunition and and the ability to really inflict serious civilian civilian casualties. You know, Seoul is like fifteen kilometers, seven miles from the North Korean border. And and their artillery penetrates well into Seoul. And they would level the whole fucking city. Millions would die. Millions would die immediately at the outset of that conflict. So it can't happen. That's why it hasn't happened. But North Korea also knows that if they popped off and decided to invade and get involved in a shooting war, unless they had the support of China and Russia, they'd be fucked. Of course they'd be fucked. They, they don't, you know, they're a military first society, but they don't have enough resources to keep that war going for very long. So, you know, that the Russians aren't going to fucking support them. They're too capitalist these days. So are the goddamn Chinese. They're not going to fucking support, you know, North Korea if they decide to attack the South. It won't happen. That's why it won't happen. Eventually, as it should take place, North Korea will fizzle out. And, you know, their regime will change hands. A little Kim Jong-un and the legacy of his piece of shit father, Kim Jong-il, and his scumbag little douchebag of history, Kim Il-sung, it'll go the way of the dodo. It'll evaporate. And those people, hopefully, will forget what was half a century of agony and misery for their people. But anyway, to summarize, my time in South Korea was one of the best learning experiences, one of the best life experiences that I have ever had. Uh, 
And I tried to give you the honest story of that here, the true story of that. I, I, I wasn't always good and clean. I, I definitely partook of, in prostitution, but I also, I was healthy about it. I didn't catch anything. Wink, wink. I did not. I am, I do not have any diseases. So I, I, I learned that if practiced in a healthy way, I believe the, the sex worker industry is a good one. It, it allows people to relieve sexual tension and stress. I learned an enormous about uh, an enormous amount about a foreign culture and what it's like to be surrounded by people who aren't like me. I got to meet all kinds of different cultures while I was in South Korea. I learned how to be a better soldier. I learned how to be better with weapon systems and tactical. Uh, my tactical knowledge, I guess I should say, increased while I was in South Korea. My my ability to operate in the field increased. I learned what it meant to be a field soldier. My physical fitness got better. Everything about my tour of duty in South Korea was mostly positive. I had good friends and good experiences. And the country is a beautiful place filled with beautiful people. You know, I think the the most negative experience I had in South Korea was when it was time to go. I remember I got on the plane out of Incheon. It was a uh, it was a Continental triple seven when Continental was still around. And I looked down um, at Incheon as we departed out and thought, oh, my God, I've made a mistake. I should have stayed. And I really should have. I really should have. I, I, I still to this day believe I should have stayed for another year or two in South Korea and, and, and called it a career, I guess, from there if they weren't going to give me aviation. But instead, I ended up at Fort Bliss, Texas, which is a story for another day. But uh, yeah, Korea was Korea was 100 um, percent one of the best experiences of my life. You know, and if you're listening and we were there together, I miss you, Carl, Luke, Cox, Nelson, all my buddies in Korea, John, Fred. Everybody, I miss you guys a lot, and I, I really hope there there comes a day that I get to see you guys again so we can sit down and talk about all those crazy times we had on the peninsula. And I hope that one day North Korea folds, gives up, and and gives its people back to South Korea, reunifies North and South under a democratic, an actual democracy, not some fake bullshit DPRK where they pray to two dead men but a real nation where they get to make choices for themselves. I hope that happens. I hope that we get to live to see that. That would be beautiful. Because I, I believe that the Korean people are a good people, a hearty people, a people worthy of, of that happiness, worthy of that unification. So I guess, you know, in the future, we will only wait and see. Until then, I hope all the soldiers that are there, that I think it's about 35,000 soldiers we still have there, I hope they remain safe, and I hope that they don't have to get involved in any fucking stupid shooting wars with the little rocket man, as Big Daddy Trump likes to call him, Kim Jong-un. So anyway, this has been my episode, my recap of the month of May. Some happy news. Airplane of the month, F4 Phantom, asshole of the month, people that drive slow in the fast lane, douchebags of history, Kim Il-sung, and my piece on my time in South Korea. It was great. If you ever get a chance, you should definitely go. Once again, thanks for listening, and a special thanks to Justin, my good buddy, for delivering me this bottle of Larceny bourbon and this awesome bullet glass to drink it in. And thank you for listening. Uh... I, I, I'm be honest, I, I'm not out here to beg <laughs> and I'm not exactly doing this for money. This is mostly for family and for friends and for fun. But if you guys feel like sending me bottles of booze, I'm game. Send it. I will drink it and I will give you a shout out on the podcast. If you, if you decide to say, I'm telling you, you really shouldn't, but if you decide to send me some money, <laughs> I don't know what I'd pay for. Probably bur- bourbon, more bourbon, more booze. I, I'll give you a shout out. I appreciate the support from Justin and I appreciate the support from all of you guys who listen and, and provide me with positive feedback. And, uh, once again, I'd like to say thank you to every single one of you. You guys are the reason I'm doing it. It's, it's, it, it, it gives me 
a great sense of satisfaction to be to be able to provide you with you know maybe some knowledge my some some words of wisdom from my personal experiences and some entertainment some laughs so once again thanks for listening uh thanks for uh thanks for all your support thanks for your positivity keep listening give us a positive review on uh, spotify and itunes or maybe it's just itunes i don't know if you can review on spotify like and share on social media and uh keep listening in i'll keep pumping out these these podcast episodes from the the big fucking studio closet so uh, once again, thanks very much, and I hope everybody listening has a fantastic fucking week. Mm-hmm.